This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Lingeta. Aloha, Kako, and good morning. I'm your host, Aggie Dubo, and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Today on the show, plastic pollution in the Pacific. Fiji is heavily reliant on tourism. Tourists produce a significant amount of plastic waste that the country is required to deal with and and not particularly well equipped to do so. A story of true resilience. PNG man enrolled into primary school at 71, six years later, and... I did grade 8, finished that, and now I'm just waiting to graduate. Graduation. And first Samoan woman to win the New Zealand Women's Amateur Golf Championships. Even if I'm from Samoa, as long as I work hard and like do what I need to do, the hard work will pay off. Um, being the first Samoan to win the New Zealand Amateur title, I guess it just tells myself that I can get there. For more on these stories, simply stay tuned. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, though. Human rights abuse, climate change commitments and the use of nuclear weapons are some of the most pressing issues of the world. It is not any different in the usually peaceful Pacific, where leaders of the Pacific Island Forum leaders meet to discuss these issues and more. On day one, leaders broke into Polynesia, Micronesia, Melanesia and the small island states group subregion. Lide Mavono, our reporter in Fiji, is covering the meeting in the Rotonga and caught up with three Pacific leaders. Balao President Sarango Whips Jr., Fijian Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka and the leader of the host nation Cook Islands, Mr Mark Brown. Uh, so with that, uh, Lida, welcome to the show again. Hi, Aggie. It's good <laughs> to be back on. Awesome. Hey, Lida, first off, we did see your pictures of the opening ceremony, <laughs> and I must say, what a beautiful display of colour. I mean, but yeah, how extraordinary was that? It was, it was I, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it, Agnes. I mean, uh, we are one region, but the differences between each of the countries of the Pacific is still, it still hits me with every country I go to. And the Cook Islands made quite an extraordinary effort to ensure that there was something for everyone. It didn't matter where you looked. You know, I, I ended up borrowing pictures in order to post them because it was just <laughs> a, such a feast for the senses. So much going on and also beautiful and proud, Agnes. Well, yeah, it was day one of the meeting and uh, Siti Rampoka, the Fijian Prime Minister, is, well, seems to be the lone Melanesia leader at the Melanesian Spearhead Group. So did the meeting take place and uh, what were the outcomes? Yes, the meeting did take place and it was something that uh, quite uh, many of us, not not just media from the Melanesian part of the Pacific, but everyone was curious about how it was going to be. You know, was he going to be the only person sitting in that room? But as he explained to us uh, during a doorstop outside of the meeting, all of the other countries of Melanesia did send representatives. There were, you know, deputy prime ministers or two. There was a foreign minister. So the conversation was super important. And Mr. Rambuka said um, they were, they managed to have some very important discussions, even though the comprehensive agenda of the Melanesian Spearhead Group took place in an earlier meeting. Yesterday, however, one of the main outcomes was that the group spoke on West Papua. And as you know, West Papua is a Melanesian province of the 
you know, of, of Indonesia. And there has been many calls louder every year uh, from mostly civil society for uh, an appreciation and a recognition of other human rights abuses that go on in West Papua. So yesterday, the Melanesian Spearhead Group decided that two of its most senior leaders, and that is uh, Prime Minister Siti Venerobuka and the Papua New Guinean Prime Minister James Marape, would become special envoys of the Melanesian um, subgroup to Indonesia to appeal directly to the Indonesian president um, to look at um, the cries of the rest of the Pacific with regards to how the people of West Papua continue to suffer under their government. And he tells us a little bit more about what he hopes will happen in terms of the future of the people of West Papua. I hope they can uh, live uh, with as uh, contributing elements of the Indonesian uh, country, nation, and uh, like they have done, in, they're doing now in uh, our Kanaki uh, brothers and sisters in uh, New Caledonia, uh, like uh, they're having now with uh, Bougainville, uh, negotiated, uh, negotiated future rather than a sudden break that will uh, not yield very, very, not heal very quickly. Yeah, and that's Surambuka on West Papua. Uh, Lee, how significant is this development? Uh, and have there been any reactions to the special uh, invoice appointment? Yes, Agnes, and and very loudly, very clearly, and quite quickly um, is the reaction of the Pacific Conference of Churches, who have been at the forefront of the call for recognition of an independent state of West Papua, but also of the human rights abuses which continue to go there. And so the head of the Pacific Conference of Churches is, of course, Fijian Methodist uh, Reverend uh, James Baguan, who this morning I spoke to very quickly and who said that, you know, they they, uh, appreciate and welcome and are very happy with the MSG's uh, uh, step to formally recognize what's happening in West Papua. But they're calling on the envoys. They said they've said that, uh, you know, as, as, as much as they respect these two senior members of Melanesia, they're calling on them to work with the representatives of the indigenous people of West Papua uh, going forward. So I'm, I'm hoping to speak with uh, Padre James Baguan later in the day as to what they hope this new development will look like, Agnes. Nice. Uh, Well, let's head to climate change because that continues to be the Pacific's top challenge, and so it is, high on the agenda of the region's leaders meeting in Rarotonga. So, you know, meanwhile, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is about to land on the island, so the leaders of the Pacific expected to pressure him about Australia's continued gas and coal extractions. Lee, do we know what some of them will have to say? Yes, well, right now, and and since the beginning of the meeting yesterday, uh, we continue to hear calls from other governments as well as the civil society um, organizations calling on Australia to be more committed. So what they want is more practical measures which indicate or which evidentiates that Australia is serious about a clean energy transition. You know, they, um, they, there's a louder um, a presence of an understanding that Australia is heavily reliant on gas and coal, and it's heavily reliant on um, fossil fuels, but it wants Australia to make more practical promises, promises that can be measured, and promises that um, give the Pacific people hope that they're serious about the rest of the Pacific. And so we heard from Palawan President Surangel Whips Jr. about what that might look like. I think it's important that, yes, uh, Australia 
is a, is a fossil fuel uh, user and also an exporter. Uh, but at the same time, they're an important partner in making sure that we transition. So energy transition is, is everybody's responsibility. And, and Australia is, is one of the big players, needs to take that responsibility. And we're hoping with the resources they have, uh, uh, they, can, they can help in that direction. You know, what Andrew Forrest is doing um, uh, on his mining operations, it's, he's going to be uh, using hydrogen to operate all his trucks. I mean, that's, that's the kind of transition that we want to see. And that's Sarangal Whoops Jr. on the need for Australia to help transition away from fossil fuels. Uh, Leader, earlier in the week, you talked about some of the issues the region's leaders do not hold the same position on, like nuclear arms and nuclear power being one. Uh, This was part of the discussion at the meeting of the small island states, right? Leader, tell us who is in the small island states and what nuclear developments do they want? That's right, Agnes. And and the small island states is quite an interesting um, sub-regional grouping of the Pacific because it it does have a mix of Melanesia, Polynesia, and, of course, Micronesia. But what's different about them is that they tend to have um, smaller islands and and therefore smaller economies and less industrial-based economies at that. And so they've always been, um, you know, that part of the Pacific that's calling for a cleaner um, energy for cleaner use of, of the resources of the Pacific. And so Cook Islands have been leading the way in that call. And so after yesterday's meeting, so aside from the Micronesian, Melanesian and Polynesian bloc leaders meetings in the morning, we had the small island states meet later in the afternoon. And one of the biggest um, uh, news, I think, to come out of that is that um, while the Rarotonga Treaty, which governs um, nuclear armament in the Pacific uh, continues to be the only um, instrument that all of the the leaders in the Pacific are guided by, now the CIS members are asking for a change to that treaty. They're asking that the treaty also includes nuclear power. And this is quite significant because if you remember, the Australian AUKUS deal um, has been supported by some members of the Pacific. Predominantly Fiji has talked about, you know, uh, Australia's um, right to to sovereignty, Australia's rights to defend its borders and Australia's rights you know, to work with its allies in, in doing that. And Fiji's, Fiji's Prime Minister, Sitivina Rambuka, came out quite early in his prime ministership to say, we support that. We support um, Australia's rights, but we also recognize that while the Rarotonga Treaty governs all of us, it does not include nuclear-powered vessels. But now, uh, Mark Brown, the Cook Islands Prime Minister, has announced yesterday they would like uh, for that to be changed. They would like a consideration of conversation for that change and they're saying the rationale for that is the Rarotonga Treaty was done in the 80s. It was done you know, as the world was coming out of the Cold War when the issues and the, and the concerns around nuclear was very different from what it is now. So um, we're looking to see what the rest of the week will look like and when I head to Aitutaki tomorrow, it's something I'm going to be looking out for, Agnes, to find out uh, what is the rest of the Pacific going to say. The Rarotonga Treaty is something that uh, we stood by very strongly in 1985 uh, at a time when the tensions, uh, the nuclear tensions in the Cold War were very different. Today, the idea is to bring up those concerns that member countries have raised today around issues to do with storage of nuclear uh, waste in the likes of the Marshall Islands, uh, Japan's decision to discharge uh, treated water into the Pacific, the uh, legacy of nuclear testing that remains around many of our Pacific Island countries, 
Uh, and also the announcement of things like increased uh, surveillance of uh, nuclear-powered submarines through the Pacific. Pacific leaders and Pacific nations have concerns around these specific issues, which is why uh, we feel it's appropriate that we should rediscover and revisit our Rarotonga Treaty to ensure that it reflects the concerns of Pacific countries today and not just what occurred back in 1985. And that's Mark Brown on Small Island States calling for a review of the Treaty of Rarotonga. Lide, look, I know day one sounded pretty power-packed, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. if it's always like this when Pacific leaders <laughs> uh, meet. Uh, but before you go, can you tell us what the community involvement is at the leaders' meeting? I mean, is there anyone else, aside from leaders, uh, that are there? And, and what's on the agenda for today? Um, Agnes, it's it's pretty exciting uh, these meetings, and um, I, I I just you know by comparison the Fiji uh, meeting last year it didn't seem like this. These leaders uh, sound very you know it's, it's very businessy. They're very concerned about the the issues that I've highlighted uh, you know yesterday and again today, and they're working very hard. Their schedule is is quite busy. And so there's lots of movements around very real issues um, that the Pacific cares about. And and they're quick to remind us, all of these leaders are quick to remind us, they're here as leaders, but they're bringing the voice of, you know, people in the communities of the Pacific Islands uh, and challenges that are very real for them. So it's not a unique voice because also at these meetings and quite well integrated into the meeting is civil society. And they're saying the same thing, but, you know, with with language that's a lot more um, desperate and with language that's a lot more emotional because, of course, they're out down there in the grassroots. And what's different about the Cook Islands hosting the Pacific Islands Forum is that they've brought back a method of meeting that was done in the past that hadn't been around um, of late, and that is to let people all come together to the table. So while it's a leaders' meeting, there are CSOs sitting at the table too, like literally. There are private sector as well. And there is, of course, the dialogue partners. We're seeing, you know, all the usual suspect in terms of the geopolitical um, struggles that are, that is now happening in our region. Um, but in terms of the community, they're there right next to us as well in, in, in all of the meetings that are taking place from the opening ceremony, which included, you know, the mamas and the papas and the children. Um, the same thing is happening right across the island. Security is ample. It's not OTT like we tend to see, for example, in Fiji. Um, so, yes, it's not just political leaders here. It's community leaders, traditional leaders and, of course, leaders of civil society. So on the agenda today, we are going to be seeing um, more of um, uh, the community come out to influence the conversations, but we're also seeing some of the uh, development partners from outside of the Pacific. So right now, as I'm talking to you, the members of the uh, Pacific who engage with the European Union are all meeting. In the afternoon, where I'm going to um, a movie screening that's focused on Jason Momoa, championing of deep sea mining. So very CSO focused today before we head off to Aitutaki tomorrow, Agnes. Mm. Sounds like plenty is going on. And uh, thank you again, Lide, for capturing all of that for us. We will catch up again tomorrow morning. Vina Agnes. Vinaka. That is ABC reporter Lide Movono live in the Cook Islands at the Pacific Island Forum.
Well, another issue of concern to Pacific nations is plastic pollution. Next week, in Kenya, Pacific and Australian delegates are hoping to reach an agreement on a plastic pollution treaty. Ahead of the negotiations, WWF published a report into the lifetime cost of plastics. Here's spokeswoman Kate Noble. WWF uh, last year uh, did some work around trying to calculate the true costs of plastic to society. So not just looking at the cost of producing and using plastic, but also all of the environmental, social, economic costs of managing it for as long as it lasts, because as we know, plastic lasts a very, very long time. And as a follow-up to that, what we wanted to do was look at who was bearing the majority of those costs. So we built a model working with Dalberg to calculate how much one kilogram of plastic costs to manage over its entire lifetime. And then we looked at which groups of countries were bearing the greatest costs to manage that plastic. So we broke it down by low-income, middle-income and high-income countries. And we found that for high-income countries, they actually don't bear a lot of that cost. And for middle-income countries and low-income countries, the costs are much, much higher. So if we look at one kilogram of plastic, it costs around 19 US dollars for a high-income country. Um, Those costs are eight times higher for middle- and low-income countries and 10 times higher for lower-income countries. What do you attribute that to? Well, there are a number of factors. So very little of that cost is um, is attributed to what we call the upstream phase. So in extraction and production of plastic, the costs are pretty consistent across um, all countries. But what we find is that at the end of plastic's life, um, so when it's being managed or mismanaged or recycled, often those costs are being borne by lower and middle-income countries. As we know, there are still many high-income countries that are exporting plastic waste to middle- and lower-income countries for reprocessing. But we also know that a lot of the, the clean-up and a lot of the, uh, the impacts on fisheries and tourism, for example, they're kind of borne by low- and middle-income countries um, to a disproportionate extent. Have you looked at any Pacific countries in particular where you could illustrate that or give us an example of the effect that these plastics have? Absolutely. We um, we included a, a case study on Fiji in this research and, and we looked at the particular sort of circumstances of Fiji in relation to particularly its high reliance on, on tourism as an industry and a contributor to um, the economy. And what we found that even though Fiji is heavily reliant on tourism, tourism and tourists produce a significant amount of plastic waste that the country is required to deal with and and not particularly well equipped to do so. So what we see, and this is a this is a problem that is is common to many Pacific countries, is that the the infrastructure and the budget to manage plastic waste is not really fit for purpose. Nonetheless, they're quite reliant on industries like tourism and fisheries that tend to have a heavy plastics footprint. So all of this comes together um, within the Pacific to paint a very specific picture around those countries being required to deal with large volumes of plastic, but having very few opportunities to deal with the problem right at the top of the problem in terms of how plastic's produced, whether it's designed for reuse, and that's a real issue. 
And so where does this plastic then end? Is it mainly landfill or is it in the oceans or is it both? It's really both. So unfortunately, we still are seeing very high global rates of leakage of plastic into the ocean. Most plastic does end up uh, in landfills, certainly in, in certain countries. But certainly what we also know across the Pacific is that there's very limited space for landfill. So this is a problem that is increasing year on year, but the capacity to deal with it via landfill is decreasing year on year. So that's a significant concern. And the only real way to deal with that is to reduce the overall volume of plastic that's produced and for plastic-producing countries to ensure that all of the plastic that is designed and produced is designed for reuse and that those refill systems are really built at scale to reduce the volumes of plastic waste that we're currently producing. Hmm, that was my next question. What's the way forward with this? Over the past year, United Nations member states have come together and are currently negotiating a plastic pollution treaty. Um, there are many options on the table, but some of those really key options are around looking at how much the how much plastic the world produces and consumes and bringing that down to sustainable levels and also introducing global rules and requirements around how that plastic is designed and attempting to kind of really drive rates of reuse uh, some of those global rules also uh, under negotiation include uh, putting in place bans and phase-outs and phase-downs on the most harmful and highest pollution risk plastic products, the most harmful chemicals and additives. So there really there is a process happening that could bring all of this to realisation, but it very much depends on the large majority of governments not being held hostage by a small minority that would prefer to see us continue along this path of voluntary measures and, and options to address plastic pollution. Do you think that this is quite a novel idea or has this something similar been done before? So I'm thinking, for example, about the um, successful Montreal Protocol, mm -hmm. which tackled the issue of ozone layer depletion. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So this plastic pollution treaty has a lot to learn and draw on from um, existing environmental agreements, um, including the Montreal Protocol and the Minamata Convention. And those agreements were very successful in putting in place global rules um, to address a very specific problem. The Plastic Pollution Treaty is arguably a lot more complex. Nonetheless, what we know from the existing environmental agreements and global treaties that are in place is that Global rules and very, you know, legally binding obligations tend to produce results. Voluntary options are very, very difficult to shift huge, significant problems like plastic pollution or climate change. What we've already had in place for the last 30 years is voluntary options and, and we know where that's got us. So what we really need to do, and it's not a novel idea, but it is a novel idea in relation to tackling plastic pollution is put in place these binding obligations, global rules, to make sure that we're banning phasing out as much single-use plastic as possible, shifting globally to reuse and refill systems that have a much longer lifespan and much lower risk of pollution, um, and, and putting in place those measures to significantly reduce plastic pollution and leakage into the ocean. And that's WWF's Kate Noble speaking to Dubrovka Volodya. 
Well, the first day of school can often be intimidating for young children stepping into the classroom for the first time. And it was no less daunting for Michael Wandel, who enrolled in prep when he was only 71 years old. Six years later, he is about to graduate from Gantam Primary School in Papua New Guinea. It's a huge achievement, and as Marion Farr reports, he's considering what to do next. 76-year-old Michael Wandel is feeling proud. I did grade 8, finished that, and now I'm just waiting to graduate. He has just finished sitting his grade 8 exams at Gantam Primary School in Ley and is looking forward to graduating. It will be a milestone in an education journey that began when he was 71 years old. When I was in the village, my mum stopped me from attending school and I grew up. I needed money and it was difficult, so I collected tin can and bottles which I took to the factory where they weigh and gave me 150 kina. So I thought about it and decided that I need an education, so I came and attended school. Over the past few years, Michael has earned a special place at Ganton Primary School, where most of the other students are more than 60 years younger than him. I used to play soccer and rugby with them and hang out with them, soccer, rugby, and eat with them and hang around with them. He says his age comes with some perks. They all respect me, the students, parents and teachers. Jackson Dedengi, the head teacher at Gantam Primary School, can attest to that fact. Everyone, everyone in the school, they love Michael and they respect Michael. They don't say anything to him. They listen to him. He says Michael has been a good role model to other students. His attendance is excellent, eh? He comes to school on time in the morning before everyone. And he do his morning charges cleaning around the school. Michael's favourite class is English. And there's a good reason why, according to Mr Dedengi. His uh, ambition to be in school is to learn to read and write. Because he wants to read his Bible at home. And he needs to attend some kind of literacy class or so to, to understand uh, English. While Michael waits to find out his exam results, he's considering what to do next. I completed my schooling and I'm considering whether to continue with my education or not. Mr Dedengi says Michael may have some difficulties enrolling in high school if they don't allow mature-age students on campus. Because when it comes to the secondary schools, they have their own administration there and they have Policies as well there. But whatever the next step is for Michael, Mr Dedengi says one thing is certain. His most senior student will be sorely missed. Oh yes, I will miss him. Surely I will miss him. Because every time when he comes into the school in the morning, he, he, he greets me first. He said, oh boss, good morning. He said, boss, good morning. He doesn't say, yeah, teacher, good morning. He said, boss, good morning. So I will surely miss Michael after this graduation. And that's Gantam Primary School head teacher Jackson Dedengi ending that report by Marion Farr. Uh, stay tuned because up next we'll have our news wrap with producer Talia Litia. Celebrate the pride of the Pacific. You know, we're proud of our country and our heritage. Stay up to date with all the latest sporting news. Victoria! 
So emotional every time we go out there and you sing the, you know, the national anthem. And hear inspiring stories from some of the Pacific's finest athletes. I've grown so much confidence within myself and I never thought I would be the player that I am today. Watch That Pacific Sports Show Wednesday nights at 7png time on ABC Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. It is that time where we get to head around the region uh, to know what is happening. Of course, that is brought to us by producer Talia uh, with our news. Rip, how are you going this morning? I'm doing well, thank you, Aggie. Let's get straight into it. Well, a new development in the Peter O'Neill UBS saga. Yeah, PNG's committal court has found that there is enough evidence to commit the former PM Peter O'Neill to the National of National Court. This, of course, comes after Mr O'Neill was charged with three counts of giving false evidence while under oath during the commission of inquiry into the Union Bank of Switzerland, which, of course, was looking into the circumstances around a $1.3 billion loan from UBS Australia to the PNG government back in 2014 and whether it broke laws or constitutional requirements. Now, the presiding magistrate, Laura Covey, reiterated that it's the work of the committal court to ensure that there is enough police evidence gathered and they don't weigh in on the evidence. That, of course, is for the National Court. The Post Courier reports Mr O'Neill, who strongly denies any wrongdoing and maintains his innocence, welcomed the decision from the committal court and urged his supporters to stay calm and respect the legal process. The matter has been adjourned to November 20th. All right, well, we'll take a look then when it comes around. Uh, Fiji relaxes visa rules to address labour shortages. Yeah, Immigration Minister Pio Tikuandua said business visitors from the 100 five visa-exempted countries are going to be able to travel and work in Fiji for 14 days without an application. After the two weeks, they will then have to apply for a short-term work permit. The move will allow local businesses to get temporary help from skilled foreign workers. Mr Tiko Nduadua says Fiji is losing valuable skills through permanent and temporary migration, an issue that's often brought up when we know even looking at seasonal work programs here in Australia and that, you know, much dreaded brain drain and so local businesses need greater access to foreign workers to ensure that their work is not interrupted. Um, it's going to be pretty swift because the change comes into effect next week on November 15th. Wow, okay. Uh, and Giso might be getting some extra tourists next year. That's right. The capital of the Western Province in Solomon Islands has taken top place in Travel Lemmings Magazine's Oceania section of 50 best places to travel in 2024. Not only that, Giza also came in second in the magazine's list of 50 best places in the world, pipped by Yucatan in Mexico, who took out the top spot. Now, the annual global readership of the magazine's best places list is around 10 million people, so it definitely helps put to help put Giza on the map. Tourism Solomon, um, Tourism Solomon's head of sales and marketing, Fiona Terma, says the travel lemming result was a huge achievement for the entire country. She said even though their annual visitor intake may pale in comparison to the other places on the top 10 list, it shows just how much Gizo is punching above its weight. Uh, we'll be heading to Solomon Islands next I know, week. I'm very jealous of you guys just, getting to go. You have to check it out before because gonna it's probably to going to be too busy in 2024. <laughs> check it out now. Yeah, no, no, sounds good. Thank you very much, Thank producer you. Talia, for bringing our news wrap today. Hey, still to come on the show is, we didn't get to share the story yesterday, but three PNG women will be showcasing their artwork in Brisbane. And also, first Samoan to win the New Zealand Women's Amateur Golf Championships. I'm Aggie Dubol, and you've been tuning in to Pacific Beat. 
For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. And welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie the Bowl. To the arts now, the work of three talented women from Papua New Guinea is on display at the Paradise Palette Exhibition in Brisbane. Each has a different style and is at a different stage in their artistic journey. Melissa Macon went along to check out their work and find out what expi- uh, inspires them to create. Well, now, as you can see, the bird is standing out because of the normal lighting, right? Mm. But then if you switch off the light and then you turn on the UV light, the bird will hide and then this background will pop out. It's very technical. Yeah. I don't think anyone else here is experimenting with (laughs) glow in the dark. (laughs) It's not not common in PNG yet. Mm. That's Kylie Mera Kapiri. Her distinct fluorescent art is among a strong catalogue of contemporary pieces adorning the walls of Brisbane's Petrie Terrace Gallery. Through a partnership with PNG's National Cultural Commission, Kylie Mera and two other women artists have been supported to travel over for the exhibition. Um, I'm from the Southern of Papua New Guinea, but I was born and raised in Moroba province, and I'm 27 years old. My heart, I define it as a, um, like more of, I paint my emotions, so it's more abstract. I don't really paint realistic painting or fine art. I'm more like expressing how I feel. My background, my educational background, um, I took environmental science. So I'm an environmental scientist, but then I went straight into business after uni. So then I found like, I found out that I could paint in 2019. So basically like what I paint is based on like climate change and more of landscape and nature, because I feel like um, most of the people don't appreciate or see that. But then I, I put it in colorful what, because that's how I see and how I value those things. So it's more vibrant and colorful. And then it speaks like, I feel like plants and animals, they don't have their voice to speak. So I feel like maybe my paintings can say something to other people. Elma Elias is from East New Britain province and she reflects that region, its culture and customs in her abstract and cubism art. My paintings here, I have the dukduks and the tumbons. They're actually significant figures of um, East New Britain, traditional significant figures. Tumbons are the ones with the faces and the dukduks are the ones with it's plain black, but it's like all like it's very long. Um, the head is very long. Um, and I have a cubism here. Um, like I said, I'm an abstract artist. I literally like to just like put anything and everything on it. Cubism has been around for like a very long time. Um, I just, for my version of cubism art, I altered it a bit and like added my own like um, si- like signature onto it. For Bougainville, as you can see, the dots and all that, it actually, they have their own, that, that's their style and that's their traditional um, way of dressing and all that. They usually always put like white dots and their color is always purple, pink and all that. Also, East New Britain, also, if you see them in cultural shows and all that, you will see their faces with like marks coming down, like just beneath the eye and like dot dots, that's like, you know, that represents their, like, you know, they have their own signature. 
culture and they have their own like specific identity. Like Kylie Mira, Elma only began painting in the last few years. She is determined to turn her newfound passion into a career. I started my first painting in 2019 and I sold it in 2019. I usually just play around and draw. Um, so, but then I was like, oh, I should just like, you know, try it in paint. So I did. And I found that I actually fell in love with abstract art and paint on a canvas more than a pencil on a paper. So I started from there. 2019, I sold my first artwork. Um, it was Mount Tavurvur. That's uh, the volcano in East New Britain. Sometimes I paint live. Yeah, I paint live outside. And like, you know, I had to just... It, not only to um, impress others, but to like... It just satisfies me. And it's just... It's relaxing. It's like... I. That's what I do. And I love. And I just want to do it. And I want to show people that, you know... You can you can be able to do this thing. You don't have like you don't have to be all boring. You know, just be extraordinary. Be your own kind. Gazella Bruder is one of PNG's most prominent women artists and a mentor to the next generation. Her art largely involves printmaking and focuses on environmental and social issues. When I started my career, straight out of art school, I was five months pregnant. Um, I became a mom at twenty, and so uh, my journey with art was uh, was not just something I was passionate about like for the last 25 years, um, not just a way of life. It was a, uh, a, a matter of survival. I had a child to raise. I, ha- I was still growing up. And um, it, art has not just been my bread and butter. It's been, it's been my psychologist. It's been my doctor. It's been my healer. It's... Seriously, I, I, I can't even imagine not having art. Um, it defines me. Gazella's work is so striking, it caught the eye of French President Emmanuel Macron on one of his recent trips to PNG. At the end of it, you know, having the French President's uh, aid uh, call and, and request that uh, the President wanted both our paintings I was like a little 16-year-old. Oh, my God. What? What? I was screaming and carrying on. I couldn't believe it. It was like Christmas. She hopes to share the spotlight with more women in future. Just having to have this opportunity to come with these two young women, Kylie Mera and uh, Elma, and to watch and to see how excited they are and see their energy. And I honestly feel old just watching them. But it's humbling. And that's the thing, you know, I look forward to the opportunity that hopefully next year under the National Cultural Commission umbrella that we will be able to have a, a major all-female PNG artist exhibition. And I and, and that's going to be wonderful because I know so many Papua New Guinean women who are great artists, who, you know, who paint and hide it in their bedrooms and who, who deserve, who deserve to to have that opportunity to exhibit and and I think it's going it, it looks like we have a great plan for the future and that is Gazella Bruda speaking to Melissa Macon in Brisbane. And if you want to check out some of the artwork on sale, just search for Paradise Palette on Facebook.
Now to sport. Samoan golfer Faith Vui is ensuring she is one to watch for the future. On the weekend, the 18-year-old became the first Samoan to win the New Zealand Women's Amateur Golf Championships. And by her side for every hit at Hamilton Golf Course was her father Gary, who is also her coach and caddy. The win is also an important step towards her dream of turning professional and becoming the first Samoan to compete on the biggest stage for women's golf the LPGA. Faith Avoy spoke to reporter Talia Aulitia about her win. I'm feeling really great. I'm very proud of myself. I guess it's just a surreal feeling. Um, I guess it's kind of still kind of sinking in, but I've gotten a lot of support and it just means so much to me coming from Samoa and things like that. I think we, me and my dad both really didn't want to put too much pressure because we both didn't want to post anything or say anything to our families until, you know, it was all done and dusted. I've been getting messages. My phone's been blowing up with my family overseas and just my friends and everyone around. And so I guess when they found out, everyone is just super supportive. I'm really grateful for that. Uh, My family members here in New Zealand, they unexpectedly came down. Um, We're not sure how they found out. I guess my mom told them because they're all on my mom's side. And it was just great having them there when I won and just having their support with me. Yeah, because you're only 18. Talk to me about the competition. I know that you enjoyed a good lead in your final match um, that surely helped to set up the win, but, you know, you still had to fight for it. Talk to me about the competition and what was involved. Uh, Yeah, Uh, my opponent was very tough. Uh, She has a great short game, and so um, it was really tough final round. I just got off to a good start. My short game has been the best that it's been in a long time. Uh, but I think that helped me in the first 18 holes. But no, it was, um, it was super tough because we were just going back and forth uh, between holes and things like that. Yeah, and obviously with a game like golf, it's your short game where, you know, you really win. Um, you have an incredibly supportive family. Your dad is not only your coach, he was your caddy as well. We know caddies offer advice as the competition goes on. So what was the kind of things that your dad was telling you? Like, how did that help your game as well? Um, so my dad is our coach, as everybody knows, and he's he's learned so much um, throughout his years to help us. Uh, he knows my game probably better than I know my game so I guess he was just he was doing all the thinking for me and I just had he just gave me the shot and I just hit it but no he was he was a great help he was probably the biggest reason why I won so yeah it was basically just these are the options and and he was asking me um, which one I felt more comfortable taking and which one you know he thought would be the better option of a shot and I just picked and we just committed to it and hit it. (laughs) You make it sound so easy. Just, you know, I just hit it. I just, you know, I've played golf before. I know it is not as easy as how you make it sound. (laughs) And how does this win get you closer to your dream of, you know, being the first Samoan to play on the LPGA Tour? It gives me a lot of hope that uh, I can achieve big things. It just takes a lot of hard work and a lot of time. And just it gives me a lot of reassurance that even if I'm from Samoa, as long as I work hard and like, you know, do what I need to do, um, the hard work will pay off eventually in the long run. And so I guess um, being the first Samoan to win the New Zealand amateur title, I guess it just goes into my heart and just tells myself that, you know, I can I can get there sooner or later. Just need to work hard and do what I can. 
Yeah, because that that is a good point. Like being from Samoa, how does that change competing in competitions like that? Like you know, that do involve travel, that do involve money. Um, you yeah. know, it obviously would also involve sacrifices as well too. Yes, it totally does. I guess like having to travel and like worrying about money and things like that, it puts a lot more pressure in my mind. My parents like don't initially put it on there, but I think as a teenager is an 18-year-old, you kind of like realize that how much money is put into here. And so it puts a lot more pressure on me. But like I use that pressure as motivation. And I, I just think to myself, hey, I'm from Samoa and I've traveled all this way. You know, I'm not going out without a fight or like, you know, I'm going to do the best that I can. And coming from Samoa, we've only got two golf courses. And I think coming out here and playing great golf courses is awesome. And so I just look forward to playing you know, in the best conditions that they have for us and just being from a small island and just traveling when we can. And just, I guess I just want to thank my parents for everything that they do for me and for giving me the opportunities that I have because I wouldn't be playing this game if it wasn't for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you've still got a bit more golfing to do this month because you're going to be heading to the Pacific Games with your brother, Leo, flying the flag for Samoa. Um, You know, what does it mean to now go into the Pacific Games? Do you have a bit more confidence or are you just like, no, we'll just reset and do it again? <laughs> yeah, it does. it does give me a little confidence that I'm getting better in my own game. I guess going with my brother there and also my dad who's managing the men's team, I think we we all have a good chance of winning gold for our country and I'm just excited to see how we go there and, you know, see what kind of experience we'll have as a team and as families. And finally, um, I probably should have asked you at the start, but how did you get into golf? Like, you know, you're still so young now and you're already achieving such great things. I know that Tiger Woods started ridiculously early, got a golf club in his hands. Yeah. Did you have a similar story? Um, no, I actually started when I was 10. I started because my eldest brother, Nico, he would go to tournaments overseas with my dad. And um, that's basically where it started all. My dad started a long time ago and he's just learned so much for himself and once we um, asked if we could start playing the game he put in so much work to teach it to us and I guess I just I watched my eldest brothers and um, Nico and Leo as they were playing tournaments and I was like oh I want to try this out and see you know how far I can go and I just picked up a club and I felt a love for it and have a passion for it and I love the adrenaline and I love the emotions that comes with it it comes with a lot of frustration and then like I guess when you put in so much hard work and just something pays off and, you know, you get that sense of achievement and like great feeling that, you know, the more you work hard and the more you play it and you just have fun with it. And I I guess I just had fun with it when I was little and I, I don't know, I just love the feelings that come with it. I love hitting the ball and just learning how to hit different shots and things like that. Mm, what an amazing young lady. That was Samoan golfer Faith Avoy talking there to Talia Aritia. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Hey, to find out more on these stories that we have today, just type Pacific Beat in Radio Australia in your search engine or head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific. You can hear us again, though, this afternoon at 3 p.m. PNG time, but we will be back same time tomorrow at 6 a.m. PNG time. Stay tuned because up next is your news, and coming up after that is Nisha Daily. Until Until next time, I'm Aggie Dubal and this is Pacific Beat.